Welcome to In Social Work, the podcast series of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work at www.insocialwork.org. We're glad you could join us today. The purpose of In Social Work is to engage practitioners and researchers in lifelong learning and to promote research to practice and practice to research. We're In Social Work. Hi from Buffalo, welcome back to the spring semester to all of our academic listeners and to 2015 for all the folks who listen to In Social Work. Let's make it a good one. I'm Peter Sabota. Adults and youth alike rely on technologies for fun, information, social connections, and more and more all the time, personal help and advice. It's no surprise that technologies have moved into the practice of social work. In this episode, our guest, Dr. Faye Mishna, discusses her research examining social workers' experiences and how communication technology has entered their daily practice. Dr. Mishna suggests that many social workers are navigating the implications on their own, and then when they do consult the limited research in this area, they find data focused primarily on the risks involved. Dr. Mishna recommends that social workers rethink the restrictions and attempt to maximize the potential that may be there. She makes practical suggestions on managing the clinical impacts such as between session contacts, boundary management, and the need for practitioners to manage their own digital presence. Dr. Mishna concludes with the importance of using technology to develop cultural competence and describes her next steps for her research and practice implications. Dr. Faye Mishna is professor and dean at the Factor Inwatash Faculty of Social Work at the University of Toronto. She holds a Margaret and Wallace McCain Family Chair in Child and Family. Dr. Mishna's research is focused on bullying, cyber abuse and bullying, and school-focused interventions for students with learning disabilities. Her scholarly publications have focused on bullying, social work education, and clinical practice. Dr. Mishna was interviewed by our own self-described technology nerd, Dr. Nancy Smith, Dean and Professor here at the UB School of Social Work. Dr. Smith interviewed Dr. Mishna in September of 2014. Hi, my name is Nancy Smith and I'm the Dean at the University of Buffalo School of Social Work and I'm excited that today I have a chance here to interview Professor Faye Mishna who is the Dean at the Factor Inwintosh Faculty of Social Work at the University of Toronto and she's done amazing research on a variety of topics with regard to technology and how it's interfacing in some of the work of social work. But in particular today, I wanted us to talk a little bit about some of her discoveries about how technology has sort of crept into the lives of social workers. So Faye, thank you so much for agreeing to come and let us interview you and also present here to our faculty and staff. Is there anything you'd like to say to people about who you are before we get started? No, I think that's fine. Thank you for having me pleased to do it. So could you tell me a little bit about sort of what you've discovered about how technologies worked into the lives of social workers? Well, I guess to summarize, I would say what we've discovered is that it's completely corrupt in. It is part of the lives of social workers in their professional face-to-face work, whether they have chosen it or not. Hmm. And that because it's kind of happened before policies or education happened, what we're finding is that 
social workers themselves have had to kind of use their own practice wisdom, their own experience to figure out ways to address it in a proactive way because initially it was just reactive. So, and again, this is, you know, small numbers, it's qualitative, so we'd like to do more research, so, you know, I have to bear that caution in mind, but that's what we're finding. Can you say more about some of the ways that it's crept into people's practice? Well, I would say one way it's crept in completely and that everybody agrees seems to be okay is for setting appointments for administrative purposes. I think people accept that that makes it very easy. But other ways that it's crept in um, are between sessions. If clients might have something they want to say that they haven't thought about it or issues come up. So I think it's crept in in the sense that it now has taken on bringing in therapeutic clinical issues that even though it's not cyber counseling per se and the reason that's important is because it really affects everything because it, it happens before thinking about when are they going to get the response what are the expectations confidentiality and I think one of the things that has made uh, myself and Marion Bogo interested in working on it is that if you look at the literature it's really very focused on the risks and the cautionary tales of what to do and what not to do. And our concern is when something is happening that pervasively and just saying to people, don't do this or don't do that or be careful about this, it's not necessarily helpful because it's not necessarily based on what they really do. So we think it's really important to find out what the positives are, how it does help, and then realistically, what are the issues and how it can be addressed. So maybe we need to rethink some of these, all these sort of restrictions that the folks who are cautioning are putting and say, well, clearly it's happening everywhere because it has a positive function too. And how do we help people manage the positive function, maximize that, and also deal with whatever the limitations or uncertainties are? I think that's exactly it. Okay. And I think the only other thing I would add to that is because if you look at the whole world, and I think the dramatic change was the ubiquitousness of the handheld device. At first it was just young kids, and now everybody has that. So it's really changed the world. And so therefore we realize it changed social work. And mm -hmm. things that were private are no longer private. So for example, public information. So everybody, gone are the days when somebody can say, I just don't give out my email address because your email address is accessible. You can find and, it, yes. Exactly. And everybody now has an email address. Right. Or, you know, 99.9%. So it really is saying, you know, we're in a new world now. And this is a digital world. And it doesn't mean we have to give up all boundaries or anything mm -hmm. at all, but we have to adjust it accordingly. Okay. Now, the ways in which it's creeping in, maybe, as you said, starts with things like confirming an appointment or changing an appointment. And these typically happen through what technologies? Email? Texting? I would say, first it was email, but as things change, it's more and more happening through texting. Okay. So I would say both. Right. With young kids, it's texting. Yes. Yeah, and then parents who have kids start to get into texting because exactly. they know they need to do that. Exactly. Okay. So after appointments, you know, are sort of confirmed and things, how does it start to leak into other areas? What are the ways in which practitioners were describing how the boundaries started to shift? They would describe different ways. One way would be just by the way, and the by the way could be a therapeutic issue or it could even be a crisis. Or some therapist, for example, talked about being out for dinner on a Friday evening, and she worked in a school board, and she got a text from a teenage boy saying he was wanting to kill himself, and this was a Friday evening, and he wasn't telling anybody. So she had to really kind of decide what to do, because it raises the questions of, you've got the text. She ended up calling the dad and mm -hmm. doing an intervention. But those are the kinds of ways it, it comes in. Okay. Other examples would be 
that's interesting is in couple therapy, because traditionally in couple therapy, the clinician has been able to say, anything you say to me outside of here, I'll bring back in here, it won't be a secret. But because it can happen so quickly by text or email, they might forget to say it, they might forget to bring it in, but that's the kind of thing that will happen. And somebody, one person talked about the husband sending the clinician a picture of the mess of the house, how messy the house was, because oh, he felt wow. that that needed to get addressed. And he said that to her privately. So that's the kind of thing. Okay. Oh, yeah. That, that, was so definitely. that definitely has an effect. So as you're talking about this, I'm thinking of some of my clinical work when I first got into doing technology with clients, and it was actually a client who wanted me to read her journal. And I've had clients do journaling, and they bring it into the sessions. But she did hers online in a blogging service at that point called Live Journal, which I'd never heard of. And so I sort of had to get into that to figure it out and read her journal. And that was sort of the start of my slippery slope right. because technology was very much a part of her life. And then texting for appointments and things like that. But I remember having conversations with her when she would send an email of something saying, you know, this is fine, but you need to know I may not respond this amount of time, 24 hours or more on the weekends longer, so that if it's a crisis, I want you to call me. And she had some boundary issues herself, and we talked about the fact that those are things that would probably be tested, and they were, and it, but it was good. We had talked about it and set the boundaries up. And then this person, long after we stopped working together, gave me permission to sort of talk about what it felt like when she started linking up with other therapists who were still very traditional. You could only contact them through their answering service or through their voicemail, and it was always, you call, and of course they're never available then because they're seeing people, and then it's them calling back, and how triggering that felt for her of her trauma history and her parents who were not accessible and abandoned her, and that she hadn't realized that having the option to use technology in a way to change even appointment felt less triggering and yes. more empowering to her. And I had never thought about these shifts that way, but it makes perfect sense. It totally does. And for me, that's a real evidence of what we're saying, that we have to understand the meaning, because in this case, it actually had meaning that is so positive. So the question is, then, how do you make room for that, but also do it in a way that addresses the boundaries and also takes into account the needs and the limitations of the clinician? Exactly. And in talking to her about that, she gave me permission to talk about this because of people needing to understand that it has important clinical meaning exactly. for clients. Absolutely. And um, that I think there's lessons for us to learn there. And that isn't what you hear people talking about when everything's about the risks and the dangers and the sort of fear level that gets generated. That exactly. There, there are real positives there. I think that's really an important piece of what the meaning is. And it also raises the whole issue because in social work we always talk about start where the client is. Yes. And if the client happens to be now wanting to use technology, we can't discount it. We're not sure how we have to address it, but we have to take that into account. Yeah, I do think that's really why I got in was my clients were bringing yeah. it up. So I said, well, I guess I need to learn about this. Exactly. And then you sort of follow their lead. I don't ask them to teach me about it, but I say, okay, here's what this person's mentioning. Exactly. I need to go and look at it. And that was how I got interested in virtual worlds as well. I had a client who was doing a lot there and had issues with trauma and dissociation. I thought, you know, I need to understand what this is because I don't even know how to help her right. with boundaries and what all of this means to her if I don't even understand exactly. it. But I think at a time now in our culture where so many adults even are using all of these tools, if we're not able to have those conversations, I start to be concerned about our cultural competence. 
and especially with young people, which is, I know, an area you've sort of looked at, too, in terms of how people can use these tools with young folks. Absolutely. So what do you think we need to start doing as we're educating social workers, whether they be in school or our peers who are out in the profession? Well, I think that's a great question. I mean, I think the first thing we have to do, we're doing a little survey and we're finding out that not many schools are including it. And often when people talk about cyber, we were talking about this, they mean online therapy. And, and so we're not talking about that because there's lots of research on that, there's lots of literature on that, and there's a whole set kind of way of doing it. But I think we need to start realizing that we need to educate both students and professionals on how to use and work with technology when they're doing face-to-face, because -face, they're not even aware of it. And uh, so I think about students, you know, let's say they're in their 20s and they're very familiar with it personally, and then they get a job, and all of a sudden they have clients responding to them. Well, their personal experience isn't going to be enough. Right. They really need to understand how to address it. And what we found, in our research, when we went back and re-interviewed the more experienced practitioners three years later, they had come a long way because they now were becoming more proactive. They were doing what you were doing initially. They would just kind of respond and not know what to do or just say, I'm not going to do it. But now what they were doing is starting off, you know, at the beginning of sessions when people often contact people talk about limits to confidentiality. Right. At that time, they'll talk about when it comes to cyber, this is what you can expect. If you send me an email, this is when I'll respond. But they're also saying they realize they have to revisit that many times with somebody, some people, so that kind of thing. So these are experienced practitioners, and it's one thing to have experienced practitioners do that on their own. It's still not great, but young new ones should not be having to figure that out on their own. So we really need to include that in the education and for continuing education. Right. We really need to have that in there. And I think in a way that lets people talk about it, it reminds me again of when I was a student, the message would be don't continue with clients afterwards, period. And it can often shut it down, so if people continued, I remember this would happen in classes, people would confess in the classroom that they actually had continued afterwards, but then they couldn't go to their supervisor because they were told not to. So I think that we need to do the same with this. We need to not just have it go underground, we need to make space for practitioners to mm -hmm. talk about it, including issues that come up that mm -hmm. are problematic, because it's going to happen, whether they do something that they're not thinking about or it just happens. So mm -hmm. I think that's really critical. We mm -hmm. need to make space for that, and that's not easy to do. Yeah, yeah. And that, within agencies, that means the supervisors need to be thinking about this. Now, and the administrators need And to the be. administrators as well. When you say that we were told uh, early, don't continue with clients, meaning don't extend the session beyond? No, I mean, I mean after they terminate. After they terminate. Yes. So, yes, right. Okay. And I remember for me an example. When I was teaching in one of my classes, practice class, some of the students end up confessing, I used to call it confessions, about how they had continued, but they hadn't been able to tell their supervisor. It made me realize that when I was clinical director of an agency and we had a treatment camp, at the end of the camp, sometimes the social work students and other students would come to me and say, they felt so connected to a particular kid, can they stay in touch with them? And I had done the same thing. I said to them, no, you just can't, and we will, don't worry. And I left it at that. And then years later, when they were talking about that, I thought, I bet you some of those continued and got into trouble and didn't come and tell me because... Right. Because they went against the rule. And I just left, you know, just closed it down by saying you can't do it. Rather than you can't do it, don't do it, but... So the question is, how do you keep a rule, not condone it, but not close it down? Right. So right. I think we really need to do that with technology, especially because it's new now. And it's happening, it's sort of... We can't just come up with policies and guidelines, so we really need to grapple with it. Yeah. As we're grappling with it, we have to be able to have room for that 
and yet being aware of the ethical issues. Yes. Sure. Well, no, I was struck as I was looking over your article about this research about someone who talked about Facebook and what does it mean to get a request from a former client to be a friend on Facebook and their concerns because they use Facebook personally. And I think those are the sort of dilemmas. And I know colleagues who've actually set up two Facebook accounts, yes. which is actually in violation of Facebook's terms of service, but they do it. They set one up for their professional practice where they post information about, you know, mental health issues or things that would be of interest to everybody. And they'll follow whoever comes and then the personal that they use for their personal life. But I think those are the dilemmas that start to exactly. arise. And then, of course, what happens when someone starts leaving on your wall something that's private, but it isn't private because anybody who's the friend can see it, exactly. you know, maybe you have to set it up so people can't post something on exactly. your wall or it's got to be reviewed. So I think those or are the... tagging pictures of you. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So those are definitely sort of tricky issues. On the other hand, I'm aware that there are people who are within the foster care system, folks as, as they're aging out, they're using Facebook and these tools to stay connected exactly. and trying to find ways to do that is much easier than trying to track down where people's emails or their lives have moved, but sort of struggling for how do you make those boundaries so you're not outing a kid as exactly. a former foster care. So it is about, I think, having the dialogue about how to use these tools and experimenting to see what works. But that means we have to understand the tools. And I mean at a very deep level. It's not just like I set up a Facebook account. I have to understand the privacy settings. I think you're absolutely right. And we don't. Um, and another example is Skype. A lot of social workers use Skype. They don't understand that that's against uh, HIPAA. Yeah, it's not States. HIPAA compliant. It's not HIPAA compliant. And also, Skype makes it very clear that they record it. And uh, I know some people have said when I've presented this a bit, some of those clinicians will say, well, they've asked their clients and their clients give them consent but then we talk about informed consent yeah what's is that, informed is that really informed consent if you feel like you're far away you need to see your clinician you need to have some contact are you going right. to say no i'm not going to do it right and it turns out there are hipaa compliance services yes. you can use exactly but i see most people who are doing even supplemental sessions are doing them via skype yes and clinically that's not something that I would do, and it is about informed consent, because it may sound fine on the face of it, and what happens when that recording then is viewed by the police who are looking at a variety of activities, or is that exactly. really what you want to have happen? Exactly. But I think that that's part of the problem with informed consent there is that we don't understand the implications of these things. I think you're absolutely things. right. We have a wonderful Google Plus community on social work and technology, and one of the people there who actually has running the other major social work podcast, Jonathan Singer, talked about, he did a post there about how he on Flickr has photos and you can allow people to share them and see them. And one day he's moving along on the web and doesn't he see a photo of his family in an advertisement? And then he realized the way he'd set the permissions up allowed for that. And he'd never considered what would it be like to come across something like that. And so then he went and changed his permission. But here's someone who's incredibly technology savvy, but hadn't thought about all the what ifs. And I think exactly. that's part of the problem with the informed consent. I think so. And then when you think about what we're being taught and what we're teaching that, we're not doing that. We're really not. Yeah. I don't think we've realized the implications of it. Yeah. Now, let me ask you, one of the things I saw in your article were people talking, too, about former clients writing bad things about agencies. Yes. And that they didn't really have a sense for how to deal with that. Did you see that come up a few times? or Just a couple of times. But what was interesting is when it came up, that was the one that we talked about in the article, was a very small agency that really sees themselves as very social justice, and they really are. So what was so 
startling for them is to see how vulnerable they could be as an agency. And it's come up with others, too. Well, and it's interesting, you know, there's no way to take that stuff down if it's libelous, but the issue is not often. It's one person's perspective. Exactly, and that's what it is. And it, it's, it's one person's perspective, but it just keeps coming up. Right. So one of the ways that Mike Langlois, who's done a lot of considering about, you know, sort of how technology works into therapy, one of the things he blogged about was if there's negative stuff out on the Internet about you, the solution is to create positive stuff, right, right. to put your own presence out there. Right. Most people don't search beyond the first page or two in Google. Right. But if you're not putting out sort of positive things, and you know, not so much stuff about your clients, but articles about that are educational and that sort of inform the public and talk about the sorts of things that are of concern to everybody, then your name comes up with those. Right. So it is about sort of getting hold of your digital presence in some ways. And again, I'm not sure that we've done a lot of thinking about that. I think you're right, we haven't. No, I think that's true. So are there particular ways in educating professionals or students that you found were more successful as you've started to talk to colleagues and people about this? That's kind of our next step to talk about what would be important in terms of educating because we have not really been focusing on that. Mm -hmm. But I think we're focusing more on it creeping. But as I've realized, it's really crept in. That's when we realized, you know, now that it's in, we really have to be teaching students. So I don't really know the answer to that, except that I think we need to do it in a way that's balanced, that doesn't close down the conversation, but that sort of recognizes that there are many benefits and maximizing the benefits and minimizing the risks. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that will be the challenge. And I'm, I haven't seen enough leadership from our professional organizations on this. People have been mostly focused on the risk management exactly. focus. A place where it makes sense, when you think about practice classes, right, and they talk about the ecological perspective or role plays and simulation, I mean, that's really where it makes sense to bring it in. It doesn't have to come in in a big way because often it doesn't come in on a big way. And also, when we think about the ecological context, it's also the meaning of the cyber world for the client. Yes. So if that could be brought into practice examples, I think that would be very seamless. Yes. It would be very relevant for students. Mm -hmm. And I think it would be a good way to begin thinking about it. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you. I think that's um, good food for thought. And I'm excited to see how we can start to uncover some of the balanced ways to address these yes. things and uh, excited to see where things will next go. I know you're planning to follow up on this research. Do you want to say anything about what you're Well, yes, to what do? I'm planning to do is uh, we're writing a proposal, and it's interesting because some of the stuff that you talked about really fits with that, where we want to look at how information communication technologies are used from the perspective of social workers, clients, and administrators of agencies, diverse agencies. So we want to just kind of get a sense of how it's used, how does it come in, the questions you were saying, like, how does it come in? How does it get used? When? What? What is that like? And then this, the other thing we really want to look at is what is the meaning of it? Mm. So the example you gave, I know some that I had worked with, the meaning was that once she felt she had access, it felt similarly in a way it triggered and it made her feel very special. Yes. Which felt too overwhelming, actually. Right. So that so needed to be processed exactly, clinically then. Exactly. So we think it's very important to understand the meaning because mm -hmm. in order to come up with guidelines and best practices, you really have to understand the meaning for the clients and also what that means for the therapist. So for example, in one of our studies, we found that according to some of the clients, it felt almost like a holding environment. When you were talking about journaling, they talked about feeling that when they wrote something that was similar to journaling and they sent it to the clinician, but that it was interactive. And once they knew the clinician had it, even though they weren't going to read it for a week or so, they felt 
supported, contained, secure, relaxed, they, mm -hmm. the, those feelings. So we felt it's almost like provided a holding environment for mm -hmm. them. But then the flip side of that is, so what does that mean for the clinician? How do they feel? So we need to understand both. So that's the second thing. And then what we'd like to do is out of that, kind of look at the policies of those agencies and just start to come up with best practices and guidelines that can inform practice and education, just that can begin to in a way that takes those two things into account. Hmm. So that's what we're looking at. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah. I can't wait to have that study done. Well, thanks a lot. And um, I look forward to seeing how this research thread continues because it's there's really lots of dialogue about these things, but not much research. Yeah. So it's exciting to have your work and to see it continuing. Thank you. Thanks. You have been listening to Dr. Faye Mishna discuss the digital age and the implications for social work practice on In Social Work. Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, Professor and Dean of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We look forward to your continued support of the series. For more information about who we are as a school, our history, our programs, and what we do, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu.